This is from uh, <coughs> the Shoyoroku, case 54, Yunyan's Great Compassion, Introduction. Crystal clear on all sides, open and unobstructed in all directions, emanating light and making the earth tremble in all places. Subtly exercising spiritual powers at all times. Tell me, how is it manifested? The case. Yunyan asked Dao, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? Dao said, it like, it's like someone reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Yunyan said, I understand. Dao said, how do you understand? Yunyan said, all over the body is hands and eyes. Dao said, you've said quite a lot there but you only got 80%. Munyan said, what about you, elder brother? And Dao said, throughout the body is hands and eyes. The verse. One whole emptiness pervading, crystal clear on all sides. Formlessly, selflessly, spring enters the pipes. Unstopped, unhindered, the moon transverses the earth. Pure jewel eyes, arms of virtues. All over the body, how does it compare to throughout the body being it? The present hands and eyes travel the whole works. The great function works in all ways. What is taboo? In our Koan study, we work with different collections compiled by various scholar monks from the Zen tradition. And in most cases, we encounter and work with a particular Koan only once. In some cases, however, the same Koan appears in more than one collection and we are required to examine it again as we progress through our training. I remember when I first started to work with koans, I didn't understand why do we have to go back and work with a koan we have already done. And it took me a while to realize that going back was only in my mind as a linear and quantified process of working with koans. Koans are expression of a living tradition it can only manifest through us, through the way we move, through the changes of our moment-by-moment -moment lives, or through us changing. It can only manifest in the one who is in constant flux. So in the same way that we can't step into the same river twice, every time we look at the koan, has to be fresh, new, 
so we can open up and recognize what we were unable to recognize previously. It's the same with reading Dharma-related texts. You can read a book about it, put it aside, and go back to the same book two, three, five, ten years later after going deeper into practice and see it in a completely different way. In fact, what changes is not so much the seeing as much as what in us responds to the text. And practice is, is meant to revive, to bring to life something in us that is there but dormant. Something that we have to learn to trust over time. And the more we dive into practice, the more what we read becomes what we feel. So it's actually a wonderful thing to go back to koans that we think we have already passed and examine again. This particular koan appears in at least three different koan collections. The Heikigan Roku, the Shoyo Roku, and Dogen's Shobogenzo. And he's raising a crucial question and it's basically telling us, look, look again, look even deeper. Pay close attention. And the question is, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? And the Bodhisattva of great compassion has different names. Avalokiteshvara. Kanon, Kanzeon, as in the verse we chanted this morning. And it is often depicted in a statue with multiple arms and many eyes. And in each hand, there is a different tool. Kanzeon literally means the one who hears, who sees the cries of the world. Which is also the awareness we work on raising every time we end with the four bodhisattva vows. The gender of Kanzeon is not always clear. In some statues it appears as a male, in some it looks like a female, and it can also appear as neither male nor female, yet having characteristics of both. You know, some statues you look at them and it looks like a female, but then you look at them from a different angle, and then you wonder, is it? Is it a female? What is it? Does it have to be this or that? Do we have to be this or that? In his translation to the, of the Shobogenzo, Hubert Nierman writes, Avalokiteshvara was iconographically represented as being male. 
But after the figure came to China, it was often depicted or pictured as being a female, although not exclusively so. From the standpoint of Buddhist iconography, the male aspect represents the personification of compassion, whereas the female aspect represents compassion in action. However, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are said to have the ability to shift between these two functions depending on which seems to be the most spiritually helpful in any given situation. And the important word here is what spiritually helpful in any given situation. In other words, what do I need to do to help bring this person to awakening? What can I do to make this person see bigger, larger, beyond thoughts, beyond emotions? So this means not to dwell in absolutes, even in relation to gender. Back to Kanzeon, the different tools Kanzeon is holding are showing the adaptability required of us in responding to different circumstances. As in the phrase, assume the shape according to the need. And the many eyes illustrate the need to be watchful at all times so we can see what is needed and then respond accordingly. And respond in a way that is fresh, new, not premeditated, pre-concocted. And this is exactly what I spoke about last week in relation to how non-dwelling manifests through our everyday authentic expressions. And the words that capture it are buoyant, nimble, agile, adaptable, shape-shifting, humble, unassuming. And these expressions are kind of like prerequisites for bearing witness to the pain and suffering of the world. They are the gateways to natural, unassuming, compassionate actions. True compassion arises out of the wisdom of seeing things as they are. Transient, interconnected, co-arising, impermanent, empty of fixed positions. as in the Hot Sutra. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, doing the Prajna Paramita clearly so emptiness all four five, five skandhas, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. Through seeing the emptiness of all things, compassionate action arises. And bearing witness is a, is a big task. 
It often seems impossible. Or bearing witness to our own mess often seems impossible, let alone the mess of others. If we run away from ourselves, of course we're going to run away from other people's issues. But it, it is a tremendous task that seems impossible even to Avalokiteshvara. According to legend, when Avalokiteshvara first heard the suffering of the world, her head burst from pain. The head exploded. And Amitabha Buddha took all the pieces and made 11 heads out of them. Then Amitabha gave Avalokiteshvara a thousand arms with which to ease all suffering. And it's a story that points at our capacity, at our capacity for limitless compassion. But I think it's also pointing at the occasional sense of despair that we experience. Despair that we feel when we do open up our hearts to other people, to the pain and suffering of others, or opening, to open our hearts to the state of this country, the world. How do we open our hearts up to what we resent? To what we don't even want to believe is happening? Where do we find the capacity to do that? So is it in what we hear or what we see? Or is it in the way we see and hear? In other words, what do we need to change and tweak? What's out there? Or the way we use the ears and the eyes? To be able to withstand the pain and suffering caused by our ignorance, we have to listen from the ground of wisdom. and see through the Buddha eye. And in Zen we call this direct seeing and direct hearing. Or seeing from the source. It's kind of raw seeing which happens before it gets filtered by the mind. And before the discriminating consciousness takes over and makes decisions for us. And at that immediate and raw level of connecting and communicating with other people or with our environment, what I call, what I, call I and what I call you are simply not perceived as separated. From there, I am you. From there, you are me. From there, you and I are redundant. 
From there, the eyes are blind. The conventional eyes are blind. It's not intellectual or logical connection. It's actually the most intimate connection that happens on a visceral level. And it can be explained, but it can't be felt as pure love, as I mentioned this morning. It happens below ground, where the conventional eye can't see and the conventional ear cannot hear. And that's the place from which compassion arises. It's interesting that the word compassion actually points at this, points at unity. The, the first part, com, means with or together. But the second part, pati, means suffering. And so to suffer together as one, not to look at what's happening, but to be what's happening. To dive into, directly into what we may want to run away from. Whether it's our own pain or the pain of others. To be one with that. And we do feel as if we don't have the capacity to do that. But we do. Plenty of it. And so to suffer together as one is expression and embodiment of compassion. And that's a manifestation of the great Bodhisattva. Remember, Vimalakirti was one of the most deeply realized layman followers of the Buddha. And the Vimalakirti Sutra tells the story of Vimalakirti laying sick in bed, and the Buddha sent a few of the disciples to visit him. When Manjushri showed up, he approached Vimalakirti and asked, Layman, what is the cause of your illness? Has it been with you long? And how can it be cured? Vimalakirti replied, This illness of mine is born of ignorance and feelings of attachment. That's the dwelling somewhere versus dwelling nowhere. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. Why? Because the Bodhisattva, for the sake of living beings, entered the realm of birth and death, and because he's in the realm of birth and death, he suffers. If living beings can gain release from illness, then the Bodhisattva will not be ill. It's just basically all he's saying is that Although we seem as if separated, we are not. We would like to believe we are, but in reality, we are not. 
When others are suffering, so are we. When the earth is in distress, so are we. In this koan, we encounter Yunyan and Dao, two Dharma brothers who studied with Master Yaoshan in the 8th, 9th century, China. And they both became Dharma teachers, successors. Yunyan actually was the teacher of Dongshan, the founder teacher of our Soto Zen tradition. So Yunyan asked Dao, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? And Dao said, it's like someone reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Imagine this simple example of groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Naturally authentic, unassuming, free of any calculations or thoughts. No hesitation, no comparisons, no debate. No gain and loss, no right or wrong. The hand just moves and grabs and adjusts the pillow. Completely in the dark. As I was writing this station, I remembered an article I read a while ago about a German forester, Peter Wallaben, who has devoted his life to studying trees. And he wrote a book about it titled The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate. And this is not a new discovery. It's been discovered about maybe 20 years ago. But it seems that recently there's more talk about it. There's also a TED Talk actually about it. And I, I find it very fitting and encouraging for us as practitioners. I want to share a few paragraphs from this. So in this article, it says, Since Darwin, we have generally thought of trees as striving, disconnected loners, competing for water, nutrients, and sunlight, with the winners shading out the losers and sucking them dry. Sounds like he's talking about society. The timber industry in particular sees forests as wood-producing systems and battlegrounds for survival of the fittest. There is now a substantial body of scientific evidence that refutes that idea. It shows instead that trees of the same species are communal and will often form alliances with trees of other species. Forest trees have evolved to live in cooperative interdependent relationships maintained by communication and collective intelligence similar to an insect colony. These soaring columns of living wood draw the eye upward to their outspreading crowns, but the real action is taking place underground, just a few inches before, below our feet. This is very much what we're talking about as in underground. The action happens underground. The interconnectedness is what we're unable to see. Or the eye, the conventional eye, is unable to see. 
And it says, to communicate through the network, trees send chemical, hormonal, and slow-pulsing electrical signals, which scientists are just beginning to decipher. Edward Palmer at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland has been studying the electrical pulses and has identified a voltage-based signaling system that appears strikingly similar to animal nervous system, although it does not suggest that plants have neurons or brains. Alarms and distress appear to be the main topic of tree conversation. Monica Gagliani of the University of Western Australia has gathered evidence that some plants may also emit and detect sounds. And in particular, a crackling noise in the roots at a frequency of 220 hertz, inaudible to human. Again, what the, hear, what the ear cannot hear. Those who seek for me in sound, hear me not. Those who seek for me in sight, see me not. Trees also communicate through the air using pheromones and other scent signals. Wallaben's favorite example occurs in the hot, dusty savannas of sub-Saharan Africa, where the wide-crowned umbrella thorn acacia is the emblematic tree. When a giraffe starts chewing acacia leaves, the tree notices the injury and emits distress signals in the form of Ethylene gas. Upon detecting this gas, neighboring acacias start pumping tannins into their leaves. In large enough quantities, these compounds can sicken and even kill a large giraffe. It's quite amazing. Trees can detect scents through their leaves, which for Wallabans qualify as a sense of smell. They also have a sense of taste. When elms and pines come together, come under attack by leaf-eating caterpillars, for example, they detect the caterpillar saliva and release pheromones that attract parasite, parasitic, parasitic wasps. The wasps lay their eggs inside the caterpillars and the wasp larva eats the caterpillar from the inside out. Very unpleasant for the caterpillars, says Wallabon. Very clever for the trees. And then a recent study from Leipzig University and the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research shows that trees know the taste of deer saliva. When a deer is biting a branch, the tree brings defending chemicals to make the leaves taste bad. He says, when human breaks the branch with his hands, the tree knows the difference and brings in substance to heal the wound. And then, mother trees are the biggest, oldest trees in the forest with the most fungal connections. They're not necessarily female, but Simo, the neuroscientist, sees them in a nurturing, supportive maternal role. With their deep roots, they draw up water and make it available to shallow-rooted seedlings. They help neighboring trees by sending them 
nutrients, and then, and when neighbors are suffering and struggling, mother trees detect their distress signals and increase the flow of nutrients accordingly. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because we walk around the forest and it's the last thing we think about. Because we don't see it. It's fascinating, but I think not so much for a practitioner. Of course. Right? That would be the, the most logical response for us, of course. Although maybe science did not know that before, of course that's what's happening. How could it be otherwise? Only we humans act otherwise. Everything around us acts perfectly in accord with. We fight it. And this is the same as Vimalakirti is saying, because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. I think the trees know better how to live the Vimalakirti Sudra than us. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. How could it be otherwise? So is there volition? Do they think about doing what they're doing? So some scientists are skeptic about it too. There's another line there, another paragraph says, not all scientists are on board with the new claims being made about trees. Where Simard sees collaboration and sharing, her critics see selfish, random, opportunistic exchanges. Stephen Woodward, a botanist from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, warns against the idea that trees under insect attack are communicating with, with each other at least as we understand it in human terms. It says they are not firing those signals to anything. They are emitting distress chemicals. Other trees are picking it up. There's no intention to warn. He's right. But what this botanist does not understand is that the way trees function is like groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. That's where practice comes in. There's nothing special about compassion, about interconnectedness. In fact, there's no intention. Even that is gone. The hen knows how to do what it does. And we know how to do what we do when we trust it. When we get out of the way and allow love to manifest, it does what it needs to do. We just got so good at getting in the way that we may find this description fascinating. Wow, that's amazing. Trees communicate. 
Trees are just big trees. So he's right. But what he's, the way he's seeing it is wrong. He's seeing it from a differentiating eye, through a differentiating consciousness. And it's our task, it's our job to see it through the Buddha. So of course there's no intention. There's only natural expression of a tree being a tree. There's no room for what we may call altruism, kindness, and even compassion. When you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. When you meet compassion, kill compassion too. All a tree can do is just be a tree. And in being a tree, it is the entire forest. So where is all that we need to do is be human and being human is being humanity itself. Where is that? You know, the Bodhisattva of great compassion does not wake up in the morning and says, today I will be a good guy. Walk around, ask people, what can I do for you? So at the end of the day, I can sleep well knowing I was a good person today. For compassion and action to function freely, we have to throw away compassion and every definition and connotation we have associated with what we think it is. Commenting on this con, Dogen said, in the night, as in the middle of the night grew up before a pillow, is an expression of the darkness. It's like speaking of seeing the mountains in the light of day. We should examine the difference between night, nighttime, as it is supposed in the light of day, and nighttime as it is in the night. In total, we should examine it as that time which is neither day nor night. Is the person, he says, yes, is the person in the words like a person groping for a pillow only a word or a metaphor? Or is this person being normal person, not an ordinary person? If studied as a normal person in Buddhism, the person is not only metaphorical, in which case there is something to be learned in groping for a pillow. So where is the seamlessness? Where is the embodiment of groping for a pillow? Is it only available at the night time? Is it gone during the day? Is it found in emptiness and gone in form? Do we make excuses to Leave it alone. Well, this is where, this is what we experience when we go deeply into samadhi. But, you know, in the city, it's different. In the subway, it's different. At work, different. It's all good, but 
It's not available right now. Dogen points out that the Kannon's hands and eyes are not something attached to her body, which would make them separate entities, but rather an expression of the totality of her being. The hand, the tool it is, it's holding, and the situation being attended to are seamless. In the same way that the trees communicate. They don't even communicate. We call it communication just so we can refer to it. They're just living, manifesting, treeness, treehood, whichever works. As in Bodhidharma's triple emptiness, no giver, no gift, no receiver. The triple emptiness. That's how trees communicate. That's how we know how to communicate. Potentially. So Dao said, it's like someone reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night and Yun Yang said, I understand. And Dao said, how do you understand? Yun Yang said, all over the body is hands and eyes. So Dao responded by saying, well, you've said a lot here, but this is only 80%. You only have got 80%. Yun Yang said, well, what about you? Dao said, throughout the body is hands and eyes. So he said, you only got 80% and then he says, throughout the body is hands and eyes. Was that 100%? What is the entire thing? What is completion? What is complete compassion? In the commentary from the, the Hekigan Lokus case on this, Yuan Wu says, people these days often make up emotional interpretations and say that all over the body is wrong while throughout the body is right. They are merely chewing over the ancient words and phrases. They have died in the ancient words, far from realizing that the ancient's meaning isn't in the words, but that all talk is used as something that can't be avoided. Well, we can't avoid using words. But if this is where the attention goes, that's where we die. It's called dying at the phrase. It can be avoided because we have to use words. The question is how we use words. 
It's the same question with how we use our eyes, how we use our ears. Are we free to use words? Or are we free when using words? People these days, Yangwe says, people these days add footnotes and set up patterns saying that if one can penetrate this case, then this can be considered understanding enough to put an end to study. Groping with their hands over the bodies and over the lamp and the pillar, they all make a literal understanding of throughout the body. If you understand this way, you degrade those ancients quite a bit, or you disparage the Buddha, as we say. Thus, it is said, he studies the living phrases. He does not study the dead phrases. You must cut off emotional defilements and conceptual thinking, become clean and naked, free and unbound. Only then you will be able to see this saying about great compassion. We must be unfettered. We must be free. We must be, we must cut off. We must not dwell. And Yuan Wu is saying that if you want to understand true compassion, we need to dive into functioning that is not hindered by emotional or intellectual interpretations. Again, like groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Please adjust if you need. It says that there is an eye on the hand, so it knows how to find the pillow. And the story about the blind merchants, merchant, <clears throat> after the rain, he would wear pure white socks and go to the market. And someone asked, you're blind. How come the mud of, on the road does not soil your shoes? The merchant raised his staff and said, there is an eye on the staff. And the commentary says, the merchant is a proof. When reaching for a pillow at night, there is an eye on the hand. When eating, there is an eye on the tongue. When recognizing people upon hearing them speak, there is an eye on the ear. And the Buddha also spoke about the interchangeability of the six senses. When one sense is diminished, the other senses become sharper or take over. And this is actually very much the same as what happens in the forest. When one tree is in need, the other trees compensate. And this is how we, we know that, you know, take blind people, for example, right? They're blind, one sense is out, the other senses become sharper, become greater. The capacity of the other senses actually grows. So we operate like that. And we are a smaller version of the universe. We are the universe. So to study ourselves is to study the universe. It works the same way. The forest works the same way. The trees work the same way. 
the sun, the moon, the stars. We are the same. That's why it's not surprising to read about trees communicating, helping one another without doing anything. That would be classic Wu Wei. Active all day, they do nothing. Actually, Wu Wei would be a great way to describe true compassion. Nobody's doing anything. Maybe we do too much. An important point raised here is the totality of our being, which manifests as shape-shifting ability to respond according to the need. And the introduction echoes the verse. Both are expressing our limitless potential, capacity, as a manifestation of great compassion. Crystal clear on all sides, open and unobstructed in all directions, emanating light and making the earth tremble in all places, subtly exercising spiritual powers at all times. How does this manifest? This great capacity in all directions, unobstructed, unhindered, free, untrammeled. How does it not manifest? If you go to the most basic fundamental expressions, which is what groping for a pillow of the ni- in the night is referring to. If we go to what we take for granted, and we examine that, we can see that we can actually live our lives this way. And we can be very helpful. In the verse, one whole emptiness pervading, crystal clear in all sides. Formlessly, selflessly, spring enters the pipes. Unstopped, unhindered, the moon transverses the sky, the earth. How does it happen? It's a miracle. It's precious. All of it is a miracle. All of it is precious. And if we recognize that all of it is precious, then we actually slow down a little bit and pay attention and allow this preciousness to manifest through us or become the open pipe for that to go through. Become the vessel for love to manifest. Pure jewel eyes, arms of virtues, all over the body. How does it compare to throughout the body being it? Who's comparing? The present hands and eyes travel the whole works. The great function works in all directions, all ways. What is taboo? And the footnote says, no right or wrong. 
no right or wrong, beyond right or wrong. And beyond right or wrong, there is no taboo. How does compassion manifest? No one knows. No one knows. So when no one knows, when no one moves, what do we see? Because if nobody moves, then there's only a manifestation of compassion. But first we have to become no one. Or we have to realize being no one. So, like the tree. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do we do what we do? One of the problems with the question why is that we always have to have a reason for everything. What if the reason is already there? It's already baked into the action. What if the answer is in the action? Wouldn't that be a relief? To not have to search? To not have to satisfy question after question after question? Wouldn't that be a relief? Passion. There's no fixed form, no defined face. You let go of right or wrong. Everywhere you are with the way. I'll let Dogen say the last word. There are fools who look upon themselves as if they were someone else. And there are the wise people who regard others as themselves. Thank you.